Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to worship. Before we dive into today's message, I want to give you a little uh, word about what's coming next weekend, because I believe that the series we begin next weekend, and that will go for four weeks, is going to be a life changer for many. What would you do if you knew you only had a month to live, just 30 days, how would it change your attitude, maybe the way you relate to some people? What specific things would you choose to do during those last 30 days of life? That's the premise that our series is based on, and we're going to look at some of the things from God's Word that would be so important for us to focus on, because the truth is, we don't know how many days we have left, do we? None of us. And so I invite you to be a part of that series that begins next weekend at all of our Grace campuses. I know that God's going to use it in a powerful way. On a tombstone in Cornwall in England are inscribed these words. O traveler, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon will be. So be prepared to follow me. And some joker came along and wrote in paint beneath it, to follow you, I'd be content if I just knew the way you went. Right? We've all got questions about death, don't we? But just about everybody wants to beat death or cheat death in some way. I heard about three guys that were, they were friends. They were just talking about what they'd like to be said about them when people gathered around their coffin. And the first one was a physician. He said, well, I'd like for people to say that he was a caring and competent doctor and that I treated all my patients with dignity and respect. The second one was a teacher. And he said, well, I'd like for people to say that uh, I, I was a wonderful father and husband and that I, I really made a huge impact in the life of my students. And the third guy said, well, when people gather around my coffin, I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. <laughs> we all want to beat death or cheat it in some way. The New York Times had a moving article back last September the 12th about the 23-year-old Kim Swazi who was dying of a brain tumor and chose to have her brain frozen and preserved with the dream that one day, maybe even decades or possibly centuries from now, neuroscience would be advanced enough that they could scan all the billions of neurons in her brain and somehow reconfigure who she really was here. And so for $80,000, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation in Scottsdale, Arizona, is storing Kim's brain at sub-zero temperatures. She knew she was dying. And when she was considering having this done, she was asked, what do you think are the chances that you'd get another crack at life, that, that this could actually work? And she said, I believe that cryonic preservation gives me about a 1% or 2% chance at another shot in life. 
Think about it. And yet, for that sliver of a hope, she willingly paid the $80,000 to make the experiment possible. People are trying in all kinds of different ways to cheat death because the older we get, the more we realize not only how fragile life is, but how quickly it passes. Billy Graham was being interviewed by Larry King some years ago. Graham was already an elderly man, and King asked him, Billy, what has surprised you about your life? And without hesitation, Graham shot back, it's brevity. It has gone so fast. The Bible says your life and mind is like a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Now today is the most crucial day in the Christian calendar. But the focus of today is not death. Thank God. That would be a dark and dreary topic indeed. The focus is conquering death. Because I'm glad to tell you, folks, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And that's why Easter is such a joyous and incredible celebration. Now, one of the things that makes Christianity unique, that makes it different from all the other approaches to God, is that it is not built on the teachings of its founder. Did you know that? Now, Jesus was a marvelous teacher. He said amazing things. He taught like no one else. But it's not built on that. Christianity is built on the actual events, some of them, that took place in the life of its founder, Jesus Christ. You see, most religions are built on the philosophies of those who founded them. And so they offer methods and means of making more sense of life or bettering yourself or your environment. And so you buy into the philosophy, you follow the laws, you do the stuff it tells you to do in the hope that it will give life a little bit more meaning or substance. And so Judaism is about fulfilling the law of Moses. Buddhism is about following the eightfold path of Buddha. Islam is about observing the five fundamental pillars of Islam. But Christianity is completely different. Oh, it's true. Jesus was a great teacher. And I commend his teachings to you. But Christianity is founded on the actual events, particularly the atoning death of Jesus on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, despite his marvelous teaching, I'm just going to put it to you plain, Christianity would be an utterly irrelevant and absolutely dead religion. And so I want us to focus today for a few minutes on the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you you to consider with me three areas where the resurrection is absolutely vital. First of all, the resurrection is the basis of our faith in God. Now, Paul makes a couple of amazing statements in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that's all about the resurrection. Look at what he said in verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
And then just a few breaths later, in verse 17, he makes a similar statement. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Now, can I interpret for you what Paul is really saying there? He's saying, look, if Jesus Christ did not rise again from the dead, the best thing we could do right now would be to close this service down early, go home, eat some good food, do something constructive with our time, because what we're doing here is an utter waste of time if Christ has not been raised again from the dead. So when we say that the resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our faith in God, we need to understand what we mean there by faith. And we need to understand faith in a a couple of ways. First of all, we need to understand it objectively. Here's what I mean. The Bible often refers to the faith. And when it does that, it's talking about a body of truths that make up the heart of what we trust in and believe in. Let me give you one example of that. It's found in the little book of Jude, verse 3. The writer says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly, here's the phrase now, for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, by faith there, he's talking about this body of truths that makes up the heart of Christianity. And the very center of that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, let's look at one other passage from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul kind of sums up the heart of the faith objectively. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, there's nothing more important in our faith than this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And then if you read on in that passage, Paul lists a whole bunch of people that Jesus appeared to, including over 500 at the same time, he says, most of whom are still living. In other words, if you doubt this story, just go ask them. They'd be glad to tell you about their experience with the living Christ. So the fact of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Bible says, is that the very Heart. It's the very basis of our faith in God. But there's a second way that we need to understand faith today that makes it a little more personal, I believe, and a whole lot more interesting. And that is we need to understand it subjectively. In other words, faith is an exercise of trust in something. You see, faith has to be in something. It has to have an object. Occasionally, I'll hear people around the Capitol District kind of talking, and, and they'll say, well, is, is she a person of faith? Or they'll make a confession, I'm a person of faith. And, you know, I don't want to be rude or anything or obnoxious, but sometimes just to kind of make it interesting, I want to go, big deal. Do you think that's some badge of honor, that you've got faith? And I want to really add, if I'm being really honest, that has utterly no meaning at all, faith. Because the most important thing about faith is the object of faith. 
And if you have faith in something that's not worthy of your faith, your faith is utterly worthless. So when we talk about faith in Jesus, faith is basically this attitude of trust in an object that allows that object to work on my behalf. Let me illustrate this for you. You are exercising faith right now in the chair on which you're sitting. When we sang the last song, you went into an exercise of faith. You let your body lower down. Some of you went crashing down. Some of you went down gently into the chair. And right now, you're being held in a sort of bent position like this, bent at the knees, bent in the middle. Now, let's be very clear. What's holding you in that position is not your faith, but the object in which you placed your faith, that is the chair. <clears throat> By the way, if you don't believe what I'm saying to you, I encourage you to do a little experiment when this service is over. When everybody's kind of gone out, come back in, make sure no one's looking now, and take away the chair and sit on your faith. Oh, yeah. You know what you'll discover? You'll discover that your faith is utterly meaningless and worthless unless it has an object that can do something for you. Faith is meaningless unless it's placed in an object for the purpose of allowing that object to do something for you. And so when you put your faith in an aircraft, <coughs> you allow it to fly you through the air. You don't do anything for the aircraft. You can just buckle your seatbelt and go to sleep if you want to. The aircraft <coughs> is doing something for you. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're allowing Christ to do for you what he alone can do. Forgive all your sin. Adopt you into his family. And begin to change you from the inside out. And by the way, I would say to you, whoever you are, if that's not happening to you right now, if you're not in the process of Christ doing something for you that he alone can do, then you're not yet trusting in him because that's what the Christian life is really all about. Allowing Christ to do what he alone can do, which is save us. Well, that leads me to a second thing because my first point is that the resurrection is the basis of our faith. The second point is that it is the basis of our fellowship. Let me explain what I mean by that. Now, some of you know what I'm about to say because you went to catechism or you went to Sunday school or you had parents who maybe read the Bible with you or something. And you know that after Jesus was resurrected, what happened? He spent about 40 days on the earth. He made appearances, we know, in Jerusalem and Galilee. <coughs> he appeared to his disciples in these places. And he did all of that before he ascended to God the Father Almighty. You learned that, not only in your catechism, you learned that as you said the Apostles' Creed, perhaps. <coughs> but have you ever noticed something very interesting? I find this intriguing. That after his resurrection, Jesus seemed to eat a lot. Now, I know that's a weird detail to point out on Easter weekend, but have you ever noticed that Jesus 
ate a lot. Let, let me explain to you what I'm, what I'm saying. And I'm going somewhere with this, so follow me here. On the very day of his resurrection, there were two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus was walking with them. They didn't know who he was. They had a wonderful conversation. When they finally reached the house, they invited him in for a meal. Jesus went in to enjoy a meal with them. And it wasn't until he was breaking the bread that they noticed these wounds in his hands. And they realized it was the Lord. That very same day, Scripture says, his disciples were behind closed doors out of fear for their lives. They didn't yet really know or believe fully that he was resurrected. And it says Jesus appeared to them, and he showed them his hands and his feet, and they were scared. They thought it was a ghost. He said, I'm not a, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, as you see I have. And then Jesus asked a strange question. He said, do you have anything to eat? A lot of eating going on. I'm going somewhere with this, so follow me. And then after that, later up in Galilee, it says that Jesus made an appearance to some of his disciples who were out fishing on the lake. And they didn't realize it was him. All they saw was some smoke rising up from a campfire. But as they got closer, he called out to them, and they realized it's the Lord. So they brought in their catch of fish, and they realized that Jesus had built a fire there he had baked some bread, and he said, bring some of that fish. And they cooked the fish, and they had a wonderful breakfast of bread and fish. Here's my point. Proportionally, Jesus ate more after his resurrection than he had did the entire time before his crucifixion, as far as the record is concerned. Why? Because food is not just about eating Eating food is about fellowship. It's about relationship. We say to people, let's get together for a meal. It's not just about fueling the body. It's about relating and building the relationship. You don't normally say, let's get together on a park bench a week from this Thursday. Or boy, I sure would like to meet you at a bus stop sometime. No. We say, why don't we get together over breakfast, or why don't we have coffee together? Because eating and drinking is about more than just fueling the body. It's about fellowship, relationship. Studies have shown that children who do not sit around the table with their parents have a markedly lower self-esteem than children who do. Did you know that? It's incredible. The results actually in these surveys and studies have been overwhelming. Children who don't have that relational time over a meal with, with adults or with their parents, they don't grow up affirmed. They don't grow up having learned and talked about the important issues of life. They haven't learned how to carefully listen to what someone is saying or how to carry on a good conversation. Fellowship around food is important. Did you know, my friend, that the risen Christ wants to have fellowship with you? Did you know that Jesus actually wants to spend time dining and relating to you? He makes this amazing statement in Revelation chapter 3. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, Jesus says, look, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. What kind of fellowship are you having these days 
with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we cannot get along in the Christian life without fellowship with Christ, without communion with him. Now, you're going to need a real good imagination for this illustration I'm about to use. So I hope you have a good imagination. But imagine a couple getting married. And when they're sitting together at the reception meal, the bridegroom turns to his new bride and says, wow, it's really gotten late today. This has gone longer than I thought. It must have been all those photographs we took. But I've got to get out of here. I promised a friend I'd play a round of golf late this afternoon. And so I'm already late. I've got to go. Uh, I, I, I hope to see you later this evening, but I've I got to get out of here. And he says goodbye. Later that evening, he comes home, comes to the house, makes a cup of coffee. About halfway through his coffee, he goes, oh, my goodness, I'm married. Wow, I'd forgotten. This is a new thing. Where is my wife? Oh, there you are. Sorry, I'm not used to having you around. It's great, but hey, I just forgot. Look, I'm exhausted. You probably are too. I'm going to go to bed. See you in the morning. Now, I told you you'd need a good imagination, right? Next morning, gets up, makes a cup of coffee, halfway through the coffee, says, oh my goodness, I'm married. I'd forgotten again. Goes back into the bedroom, says, hello, hey, I didn't see you there when I got up. I'm not accustomed to having you around. Look, in a few minutes, I've got to go. I don't know if I'll be back tonight or not. I may be back tomorrow. I don't really know, but I sure hope you have a good day. Now, if you can imagine that happening and you met that man or his wife sometime later and said, hey, tell me, how is marriage going? Would it surprise you one bit if they said, it's not really a relationship at all. It's not working. It's boring. But you know, that's the way many of us Christians treat God. We don't do much relating at all just a quick good morning God would you please give me a good day today don't let anything nasty happen to me amen at the end of the day we go hey God thanks for a good day it was pretty good not many bad things happen I appreciate it very much please give me a good night tonight I don't want to have any nightmares oh by the way bless all the missionaries amen and we wonder why it doesn't seem like much of a relationship. We take about 30 seconds a day and tip our hat toward God. But when do we ever stop and just relate and listen and have a communion time with our Father? That's what a relationship is about. You see, not only is the resurrection the basis of our Faith, it's the basis of our fellowship with God. And that's why the first thing after his resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples and says, hey, got anything to eat? Hey, let's just dine together. <coughs> Look, let's just spend some time together. Let's enjoy some good time. And what I'm describing sets Christianity apart from everything else. Buddhism is not about fellowship with Buddha. Buddha died in 483 B.C. His body was cremated. His ashes divided into eight portions. And then 
They were distributed in eight different directions. Buddhist literature, by the way, says that when Buddha died, and I quote, it was with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. And then his followers said, and again I quote, Buddha is dead, but his teaching remains in our hearts forever. There's no fellowship with Buddha. Islam is not about fellowship with Muhammad. Muhammad died in 632 A.D., having been poisoned sometime earlier, it seems. He is buried in Medina, and his tomb is visited by thousands of faithful Muslims every year. But there's no fellowship with Muhammad. Judaism is not about fellowship with Abraham or Moses, The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham died at a ripe old age, full of years, and was buried by his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, end of Abraham. Moses, it tells us, died at the age of 120 at Moab. The people mourned him for 30 days, end of Moses. Jesus died. The people mourned him for some 36 hours. And the last people to visit the tomb of Jesus as mourners were two women on Easter Sunday morning. They went to mourn, but they found out the most spectacular good news they could have ever realized, that the tomb was empty. And although thousands of tourists go to visit the tomb of Jesus every year, since that Easter Sunday resurrection morning, no one, no one has ever gone back to mourn at the tomb of Jesus. You know why? Because the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. It is empty and he is alive and he's alive forevermore. And that's what makes Christianity different from everything else. It's about knowing and enjoying fellowship with God. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So let me ask you today, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he one that you're having fellowship with? Are you relating to him? And do you know you know him because you're communing with him on a regular basis? At the heart of the Christian gospel is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a third thing, very, very briefly, and that is the resurrection is the basis not just of our faith, not just of our fellowship, but I'm going to suggest to you that it is the foundation or the basis of our future. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that word first fruits there means that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is like a prototype of ours. One day those who've died in Christ will be raised. And the ground of our certainty for that is the resurrection of Jesus as the prototype. We live with that ground of hope. This life is so brief. 
It'll be gone in, the, in a flash as, as quickly as the, the mist is burned off by the sun in the morning time. But that's not the end. And for those who've died in Christ, there will be a resurrection from the dead. Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The criterion there is those who believe in him. That means you place your trust, your faith in him. Just as I explained earlier, you place your faith in a chair. You let the chair do something for you. It holds you there in position. Put your faith in an airplane. You allow it to fly you through the air. You put your faith in Christ. He saves you, and he keeps you for eternity. And that's why, my friend, Paul almost mocks death in this very chapter we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The grave may look victorious, Paul says, but it's just an illusion because the day is coming when the dead in Christ will be raised. Grave, you think you're the winner. You think you're the winner, but Christ has taken away the sting of death. Now, let me ask you today, do you have that kind of certainty for the future? Do you have a biblical hope that just as Jesus was raised, you too will be raised one day to eternal life? Do you know Jesus Christ? That's what this gospel is all about. That's why this church and every gospel-centered, Christ-centered church, that's why we exist, to simply proclaim that message and to see as many people as God would allow us to reach to see as many as possible hear and respond to that gospel. But I'm concerned about you today because I know that some of you have come and there's a vacuum, there's an emptiness in your heart and I don't want you to leave here. The Lord certainly doesn't want you to leave here today with that sort of vacuous heart. He wants you to know him. He wants you to not only believe the right things, that body of truth, he wants you to actually put your faith in him just as surely as most of you are putting your faith in a chair right now that's holding you. He wants you to trust him day by day with your very life. I'd like to invite you to do that. I'd like to invite you to pray a prayer with me right where you are and invite Christ to be your hope your Savior, your Lord. And if God has brought you to this moment, if he's prepared you for this, as you pray this prayer silently right where you are, God's gonna meet you where you are. And he's gonna do a miracle in you that only he can do. Are you ready to pray? Let's bow our heads together. Let's bow our heads together. And I invite you to pray this prayer simply phrase by phrase after me. Oh God, I know that I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising again from the dead. I repent of my sin. I acknowledge it to you. And I open my life to you today. Please forgive all my sins. Adopt me into your family. 
and begin to change me from the inside out. Father, I thank you for this awesome, awesome promise you've given that you don't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You want all to know you and have eternal life. And for those who've opened their life to you just now, I ask that you would save them and keep them for eternity and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen.